Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? I'm so excited about talking about the scriptures. It is like amazing. And then now that we have a uh, third voice here talking with us, it's going to be so much fun. We do have a third voice. We are joined by Brittany Mangelson. Welcome, Brittany. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And uh, let me just get this out of the way real quick. Just for our listeners who are less familiar, Brittany is a convert to Community of Christ from the LDS Church, and she serves as an elder in the Salt Lake City congregation. She works full-time for the church as a seeker minister, helping bridge understanding between the two churches. She works on the Project Zion podcast, which helps share the theology and beliefs of Community of Christ as a church, as well as stories of how we live out Christ's mission as a community. So thank you so much for joining us, Brittany. We are so excited to have you on to discuss these particular sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, and we are so excited to hear what you have to share with us. Yeah, it should be good. I've been a listener of Beyond the Block, and I uh, am just really grateful and excited to to be here today. Yes, ma'am. So you survived all my jokes? (laughs) I did, yeah. I mean, and, you know, they're like the best dad jokes there are, right? Like the best Mormon dad jokes. Brittany, I don't need this today. Like, I don't need all this encouragement. Like, <laughs> and I just want to say, Brittany, I have a lot of, a lot of respect and affection for Community of Christ. There's a lot of good stuff going on there. A lot of really good people, and I, I like to say that I respect the reorganized so much because I can't even get reorganized the first time. Oh my gosh! But I'm Ching. Here we go. Yeah, <laughs> we can't just get organized started. the first time. We just started. Okay. With that then, before we go ahead and uh, launch into our conversation on Doctrine and Covenants sections 27 and 28, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So again, we are in Doctrine and Covenants sections 27 through 28. Just by way of uh, some historical context, Derek, please let me know if I miss anything. But it is my understanding that the revelation we receive in section 27 is a response to Joseph Smith going to get wine for a particular meeting that they're having. The meeting I understand it at is uh, Joseph Smith and Oliver. I think their wives have been baptized at this point and they were looking to confirm them now that they have finally moved away from the persecution uh, that they were experiencing in sections prior. So uh, Joseph Smith is about to get some wine for this occasion where you know, their friends are about to be confirmed, and that is when they confront a or are confronted by a heavenly messenger, when Joseph Smith is confronted by a heavenly messenger. Do I understand that correctly? Right. That's my understanding. All right, cool. So that is where we get section 27. And there's so much I want to say about this section, about particularly how the revelation that Joseph Smith received wasn't even what we have present in uh, section 27 like a lot of this has been added after the fact and the significance of that is something i hope we get into as we discuss these first sections or these first verses in section 27 so just to begin do either of you have anything to say about verse one i i thought it was significant uh as i was going through 
not only the text, but I had the Come Follow Me manual up and reading what they were saying and uh, looking at the section heading that's in the LDS version of the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, it mentions that an angel or a heavenly messenger is who appears to Joseph. Uh, but I found it interesting that the actual text is with the voice of Jesus. So um, Jesus is saying, uh, the Lord, your God, your Redeemer, whose word is quick and powerful. And it, I kind of, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a mom of three kids, and if I were to ask my kids to draw this scene, uh, I'd, who would I have them draw? Did Jesus appear? Was it an angel? I think when I was LDS, I probably would have uh, assumed that it was an angel who maybe took on the voice of Jesus. Uh, but to me, just reading the text at face value, it's not overly clear, which I just, I find interesting. Um, I did end up looking it up in the Joseph Smith papers just to kind of see what the original text said. And uh, yeah, I mean, it matches with what the header says, um, that a heavenly messenger, an angel appears. Uh, but again, it's the voice of Jesus. So not that there's maybe a ton to draw there, but just theologically, it's it's just interesting, right? Um, is it an angel? Is it Jesus? Is it God? All three characters are mentioned. And to me, that just kind of brings up some theological questions that I have of, of who actually was it or who was actually speaking with that. So I just, it was, it was an interesting note. Quite. Thank you for bringing that out. Derek, did you have anything you wanted to bring into a section, or sorry, the first verses? Yeah, I was thinking about this because if we look kind of at the generalities in Doctrine and Covenants, we see that most revelations are received in response to a concrete inquiry from the prophets. Oh, snaps, Either yes. a real-life situation on the ground, like there's some big mess that needs to be cleaned up, or there's some encounter in the scriptures during the translation project of the Bible. And these concrete things lead and prompt the prophets to ask of God. We've saw, said this on the podcast before, that the people prompt the prophets. And this is important to name because it testifies to the role of human initiative in accomplishing change in the church and development in the church. Many people otherwise would assume that God would spoon feed everything that we need without any responsibility on our part. So that's the standard pattern, at least from my perspective, we have very few exceptions. However, this text does seem to be one of those rare exceptions where you have this spontaneous, unprovoked, unprompted visit by a heavenly messenger. And I think it's important to name these exceptions because we don't want to go too far in the other direction of saying, claiming God must always wait in for us and wait for us to be ready or wait, you know, before trying to send a message to us. Mm. And I imagine that there are many times that God earnestly wants to share something with us, but we or the leadership choose not to receive it. I don't want to outsource all of our mistakes onto God and say, well, God just was sleeping when people were suffering because that's not the God of the living scriptures, right? God is always trying to, trying to do something and we might uh, in our agency somehow obstruct that i like that a lot derek and i do i would like to uh make re i would like to reference that thought that you shared particularly that one about uh how revelation might work like this exception that you talked about i want to reference this when we talk about uh, section two uh, because this one really stood out to me a lot i'm just going to go ahead and read it for uh, the sake of context and before i forget to read it 
This is the heavenly messenger saying, For behold, I say unto you, that it mattereth not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink when ye partake of the sacrament, if it so be that ye do it with an eye single to my glory, remembering unto the Father my body which was laid down for you, and my blood which was shed for the remission of your sins. Now I recall seeing the phrase, it mattereth not, several times in the Doctrine and Covenants, and I'd like to highlight a couple of these spots to try to answer the question, what does matter to the Lord? And what kind of implications might that have for us in our personal lives and also you know, as we do this work that we're all engaged in doing. The, the first time I uh, came across these verses, I was about 18 years old, I think, and I was racking my brain trying to figure out how I was going to spend my last summer before my mission. I had two reasonably good options, but choosing one or the other was going to have tremendous implications for both my mental health and, you know, my financial situation at that time. And the Lord didn't push me in one direction over the other, which was part of the frustration. I think this was the first time in my life I had a significant decision to make where I really wanted the Lord's help and he wasn't pushing me to one direction or the other, and it was really frustrating. So uh, one day I was on campus and I ran into my good friend, Ari, and I told him my dilemma. And angels ministered that day as he told me of a similar experience that he had to deal with. And then he quoted these verses to me and these key phrases, they still ring in my head anytime I struggle to make a move because the Lord hasn't yet told me what to do. And those phrases were, as seemeth you good, and it mattereth not to me. One more thing I, I like about this section is that it demonstrates this way that Derek was just talking about of receiving a revelation, a, a way that in my experience, revelation seems, seems to work a lot. Sometimes the Lord doesn't push us in the right direction, but, but he'll like steer us in the right direction, if that makes sense. But uh, I want to read some of these verses that also include this phrase where the Lord tells like one of them is in section 60, where the Lord tells his elders to go to St. Louis and also says that in order to get there, they can buy or build a craft, quote unquote, as seemeth them good. The Lord doesn't seem to care what means are taken so long as that end of getting to St. Louis is accomplished. In section 61, we see something similar. The Lord told Joseph in verse 22, it mattereth not unto me, um whether they go by water or by land, close quote. Similar to section 60, the Lord doesn't have an interest in how they get to their destination so long as they get there and fill their mission. Finally, we get to section 62, verse 5, the Lord says, All together or two by two, as seemeth you good, it mattereth not unto me, only be faithful and declare glad tidings unto the inhabitants of the earth or among the congregations of the wicked. Close quote. Again, the Lord is displaying a lack of interest in how a task gets done so long as his elders are uh, faithful and so long as they preach the gospel. Now we come back to section, or sorry, uh, section 27 and verse 2. It mattereth not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, if it so be that ye do it with an eye single to the glory of God. To my glory is what it says there. Do y'all see a pattern here that you guys want to name before we move on or before I include my opinion on this? I do. I mean, it makes a lot of <laughs> sense. I think we've got this cultural thingy 
And I, as a convert to the church, I have to say, I see all these cultural things. They blink like like lights, like when I see something weird. Like, what I mean is, a lot of people say, oh, it has to. we have to know exactly how to do that, and it has to be this one way. And even if it's not revealed that it has to be that way, there's just this cultural assumption that this is what it needs to look like. And for God, a lot of these things, it mattereth not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that human nature, we often like to be told what to do, what to believe. Um, There's safety and certainty. And I really appreciate the the scripture with with something of, you know, an an ordinance. We're talking about the sacrament in community of Christ. We would call it communion. Mm -hmm. We tend today, and when I say we, I'm putting my Mormon hat on, um, you know, when we we have our priests say the prayer, um, if if they get a word wrong, if they stumble, if they whatever, you know, they have to do the prayer over again often, or they have to um, have it under the right authority. And, and I, I wonder if, if God really cares about that, right? I wonder if, um, if the spirit of the sacrament can be upheld while not getting so bogged down by the particularities of it. Uh, I did want to share a scripture really quick from uh, some more recent revelation and Doctrine and Covenants from Community of Christ. So this is from Doctrine and Covenants 162 2D. It is not the form of the sacrament that dispenses grace, but it is the divine presence that gives life. Be respectful of tradition and sensitive to one another, but do not be unduly bound by interpretations and procedures that no longer fit the needs of a worldwide church. Ooh. In such matters, directions will come from those called to lead. So this is specifically talking about sacramental ministry or ordinances. Um, But I think it it goes along with your point, James, that, um, you know, so often God is not going to tell us every single thing we need to do and give us this like line by line structure necessarily. Uh, I mean, wasn't it Joseph Smith that said, you know, uh, teach correct principles and let people govern themselves. So this is an idea that I think has been in our faith community since the beginning. And I, I think that it goes right along with Revelation and uh, all the things that we're going to be talking about today, because I think we can just get so stuck on the particulars. And I think that God's probably a bit bigger than than all of that. Yes. Let me just tell you, fam, I forget how long ago this was, but I remember one time we were authorized to uh, bless and pass the sacrament in our own homes, but we ain't have bread, but we did have crackers. And we had such a difficult time trying to figure out whether or not we needed to switch the word in the sacrament prayer. And I was like, this should not be this stressful. Like we are clearly doing something wrong if we are stressing about this prayer this much. And, you know, I was thinking about that as you spoke, because I was like, there is so much minutia we trip over in this church for the sake of trying to be obedient but ultimately causing what I feel is undue stress to ourselves to the point where we, you know, cause ourselves, may even cause ourselves to stumble. This is way bigger than the crackers. Yes. It's like people have a scrupulosity about the cracker. Think what they're going to do with gender. Think what they're going to do with marriage. Yes. Think what they're going to do with race or think what they're going to do with any of these things. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, I think that it it mattereth not is a scriptural phrase that we should be hearing more in the church. Mm. And uh, when people use some of these identities to limit access to blessings or sealing or callings or any of these things, I would love us to say that gender mattereth not. Mm. Uh, 
and without erasing experiences of gender or removing these differences, we don't want you know we don't want to pretend they're not there. But we can say that these differences should not be the basis of discrimination. Yes, sir. And I think that is what's going on when people have this scrupulosity about this is what it has to look like. I mean, yeah, it says God created male and female, but why does it have to look like this particular vision of it? Like, why can't we latch on to what Paul said in Galatians 3.28 that in Christ Mm -hmm. there is neither male nor female? Mm -hmm. And this is a, a place where, of course, we in in our tradition have some holy envy for community of Christ. Oh yeah, absolutely. I do want to come back to a 27.2 and talk a little bit more about this. This pattern that I've noticed of the Lord not having a strong opinion on the means we use to meet a specific end, but all of these passages also have a conditional phrase that I thought was really interesting. In 27.2, it's the phrase, if it so be, that there's an eye single to my glory. There's a similar phrase. It even starts the same way in verse six, in uh, section 61. And then in 62, the phrase is only be faithful. The Lord basically gives us free reign to operate however we want, but within very few, but nonetheless significant parameters. In other words, the Lord seems to be saying, I don't care how you get it done, as long as these particular conditions are met. And this is kind of an attitude I wish we'd have a little bit more in the church. We kind of talked about this in our, uh, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but when we talked about the organization of the church with Doctrine and Covenants section 20, and we briefly brought up how, you know, it's very interesting how we have highlighted certain duties as priesthood duties, but not necessarily things that require priesthood power. And I think that the Lord would be more than okay with us, you know, making sure that these people who have these offices get these things done, but also making sure that if it doesn't require priesthood authority, that we at least are okay with making sure it gets done with a nice single to the glory and not so much worry about, you know, the gender of the person accomplishing those tasks. I just find the grammar that the Lord uses in that particular section very interesting because there's a lot of leeway for us to actually play with who gets to actually do this and who should be doing it if the you know necessary qualifications that we understand are not met so i just really like that idea but uh, anyway those parameters i just want to know what those conditions are that was the next question i wanted to ask myself and in this particular case i think it's worth mentioning that the lord says the emblems don't matter but doing so with an eye single to his glory does matter. The question should be, does this bring our focus to Christ? And I feel like that should be the fundamental question behind all we do in the name of Christ. Is the ultimate end to his glory and living a life akin to his, is that present in these things that we engage in? I find that when I ask this question, it becomes easier to answer other questions when it comes to the affirmation of of, uh, people in marginalized groups. Uh, Derek has already alluded to this, but you know, If the glory of God can be realized in the authentic expression of gay, bi, trans identities, if it is possible to love and serve Christ in these identities, then do we potentially come up to a problem when we spend so much time focused on how the nuclear family ought to look? Do we do do ourselves a disservice when we focus so much on these identities that we alienate these populations to the point where... We're not able to fully come into community of Christ as he would have us do because we are just so focused 
on what we understand to be problematic identities. So that was the next place my mind went. What does matter to the Lord? So I I think it's interesting. I have often said that, well, first, Community of Christ is not a perfect church, right? Um, my experience is my experience. And, you know, coming from the LDS church, being born and raised in Provo, uh, being a woman, I I did feel excluded because of my gender. There were certain things that I would have loved to be involved with, but because I was a young girl or because I was a woman in the church, I just knew that that door was closed. Um, coming to Community of Christ, it was kind of jarring because I feel like I almost lived what you're talking about, James, um, as far as like priesthood goes and, and how do we liberate um, different functions of church, different duties in church without having it need to be, you know, under the banner of quote unquote priesthood, uh, which means like I was able to do more in community of Christ as a non-member woman than I would have ever been able to do as a Mormon woman. So things like planning the Sunday service, the worship service, um, that's not necessarily done by priesthood or, um, you know, all, all of the, the functions, if you think of a ward and you think of what falls under the priesthood, uh, those things are not part of priesthood in community of Christ. Maybe the focus is there. If you're a teacher, you're focused on very specific things, but it's not like those things are off limits to everyone else. And uh, I just, I, it was really eye-opening to me to see that my interests or giftedness could be liberated and I could participate as a woman in ways that, again, no LDS women are able to participate. Um, in Community of Christ, really the only things that would be off limits and or reserved for priesthood members would be the actual sacramental ordinances um, that would be, um, you know, officiated by priesthood. But beyond that, a lot of virtually everything else can be done by just members, which makes for a really... Uh, it, it just allows for people to plug themselves in in the way that they want to live out their testimony of Jesus, right? So they're able to just kind of to, to plug themselves into the congregation, to the community in a way that really matches who they are. They're not necessarily being told what to do or excluded from something based on their gender or their marital status or their sexual orientation, et cetera. So. Mm. Wow, that is a really great insight. I'm so glad that Community of Christ has looked at, well, what really matters? Does, is priesthood itself sort of this scrupulosity beyond what it needs to be? And I'm, I'm glad that you bring that up. In terms of James's question about how do we know what's essential and what is, uh, what mattereth not, my contribution is to say, that it's the people on the margins who have the best wisdom about what's essential and what's not. Because if you're in the center, there's just a lot of assumptions, a lot of questions you've never even thought of. But those on the margins are in the best position to say, look, no, this, this doesn't look like that, but I still have the same spirit. I am still uh, having my eyes single to the glory of God. Like I know that this is really fulfilling everything that it needs to fulfill and the rest mattereth not. I just wanted to, while we were in 27, bring up the fact that uh, even section 27 itself was an expanded revelation. Yeah, I just want to say something real quick. I don't even know if that's possible for me to say anything real quick, but <laughs> people make this big 
you know this this large amount of scrupulosity about the the language of the proclamation on the family. Now people say, well, th- we've got the proclamation, and well, there is that, and there's a lot of other stuff about how to interpret and apply it. But there's this other thing about the language of the proclamation isn't canonized, and that even if it were, it still doesn't doesn't need to be seen as fixed. Like if we look at the early revelations from the early 1830s, looking at the manuscripts, we look at how it's reported in the Book of Commandments, how it's reported in the Evening and the Morning Star, and then in the 1835 Kirtland DNC, like it changes. Like they just random, I shouldn't say randomly, I think they were inspired, but they decided to, to change the wording when it needed to be changed. And I think within the Church of Jesus Christ, there's a, uh, there's this idea that we either have to keep the, the proclamation on the family or we have to throw it out. I'm like, it can be rewritten. Like we can mm-hmm. just print print a new edition and mm-hmm. and just tweak a few words and we still will have the same inspiration of the stuff that matters mm-hmm. and the stuff that mattereth not will get massaged into what it needs to be, right? And I think that splits the difference between the people who have this all or nothing thinking about the proclamation on the family. Mm. And it gets back to like what we're saying is the, the whole purpose is where is this pointing? And talking about where it's pointing, I like what Dale Luffman, and we're going to talk about him more later, but I like what Dale Luffman has to say about this declaration in verse 4 of chapter 27. And the declaration says, Wherefore, you shall partake of none except it be made new among you. And Luffman says that this council has a double meaning. I just thought that was so brilliant. Made new refers to the manufacture of the wine, but it also signifies that when we come together in the sacrament, it becomes something new as ordinary elements take on extraordinary new meaning and symbolism in Christ. And I think that's what the best of religious traditions are about anyway, is to make meaning out of things, to be a, a framework for your daily life, to propel you towards being something greater. And this being made new is something that we should do with everything that's sacred, mm. is, is it should be continually made new for us, including what could be seen as our most um, honored texts. Mm. Yeah, Derek, I'm really glad that you brought that up because in Community of Christ, um, the whole purpose of sacramental ministry is to be transformed. And so getting caught up on the particulars, yes, there are things that are really meaningful to us, the symbols, uh, but they're not necessarily the whole point. They're not what we, uh, we, we don't worship those symbols, right? Mm-hmm. So just a really quick ex- example, when my family and I joined Community of Christ, my husband is 6'5", he's a big guy, and the person that he asked to baptize him was this short little man that was, I don't know, probably five, five or five, six. And the two of them got in the baptismal font and in community of Christ, we baptized just like the LDS church does by immersion. And my husband did not go all the way under his whole shoulder went, you know, stayed above water. Some of his chest did, um, the, the priest that was baptizing him just physically couldn't get him all the way down. And, uh, the Salt Lake congregation is primarily made of former LDS Mormons. And everyone just kind of was like, Oh, are they going to have to do it again? Right. Cause in the LDS church, you would, you would need to do it again. I was baptized twice as a little LDS girl because my foot popped up. And uh, we had a president of 70 there and our pastor was there and they were just like, it's okay, right? It, it's, God's not going to um, deem this baptism, uh, you know, void 
because because a shoulder popped up but the dignity of the person baptizing my husband and the dignity of my husband was upheld and the worth was upheld and they didn't want to embarrass anyone you know like that's not the point um the baptism still valid it still is seen as this overflow of community and grace and god's unconditional pure love that was still felt in the sacrament i like that that rings true to me especially when you look at the ministry of jesus christ in uh in the flesh where at every turn, he would rather break a rule than break a person. Oh, yes. Say that again. Oh, he would rather break a rule than break a person. I'd do that, right? Yes, I, sir. I'm going to – I'll have stories to tell you about some of my rule breaking. I don't want to take up that time right now. <laughs> but I do have something to say about something later in Section 27. This is um, – we've got a really great – Uh, comfort and strength given to Joseph and Oliver for their work ahead. And this is the text that's derived heavenly from Ephesians 6, verses 13 to 17 as its source. And here we see the image of a full set of armor used to symbolize the power of the gospel and all of the, the blessings and gifts that we have. And in this armor, all but one of these elements are defensive. One, the sword of the Spirit, is offensive. Or in other words, some pieces of armor are used to defend a position and bolster security. Another, the sword, is used to advance and make progress towards uh, a goal in, in the struggle. But as an advocate of the peace of Christ, I'd like to demilitarize this symbol and translate it into something that can broaden our understanding. In a way, I'm making this new. So I'd like to see our doctrine as a, uh, people wonder, like, how do we characterize our doctrine? People use this word doctrine all the time in the church. Um, I'd like to see our doctrine as a beautiful striking cliff that we are climbing together. And on this cliff, there are several features. There are ledges of doctrine where we can stand to find security in the midst of our fears, a large place to put our feet. And there are handholds of doctrine, small handholds that if we stretch out and claim them, we can be pulled upwards towards ever greater heights. Now, culturally, most people in our church want to huddle on the ledges in a mentality of scarcity and and not even take a step anywhere. But there is more to that cliff than that. I feel we need both aspects to our doctrine to have a healthy approach to faith. We need the ledges for wise pastoral comfort, and we need the handholds for bold prophetic change. And that's where we as LGBT folks or anyone on the margins, we, we're the first people to notice those handholds. And there's going to be people, when we put our hand on that handhold, we'll step on our hand, hmm. right? Because they think that everything needs to be a ledge. And I'm here to say that that's not the way Christ has planned it. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I think it's an important reminder, again, for those who are at the center of the story to have that in mind that, you know, how, how do, how does our theology, how does our doctrine impact in some ways shove people off the ledge, right? Like that's, that's not, that's not what Jesus would do. That's not what our goal should be. And yet how often do church people, particularly Christians, uh, how often does the gospel get used as a weapon? I mean, 
all the time, mm-hmm. all the mm-hmm. time. That's a big one. I Derek is probably sick of me like citing this particular passage by now, but I think about Matthew 23 all the time because it is about this very thing. Like people who use, who weaponize the gospel of Jesus Christ, they weaponize the law of the man who is love to deny people God's love. And that is just like, we don't see Christ get angry a lot in the new Testament. We don't see it happen a lot. You know, and considering all the things that Christ had to deal with, the impetuous nature of Peter, the greed of the sons of thunder, the betrayal of Judas, he had plenty of opportunities and reasons to be upset. But like in that particular passage of scripture where we see all those exclamation marks, the hypocrisy of using God's law to deny people God's love is probably one of the worst things, worst sins, worst offenses we could ever commit. Because it actually did make Jesus upset. Like, he was actually mad about all that stuff. And I think we need to take it more seriously, or at least treat it more, uh, treat it more seriously, I guess, when we see people literally taking the name of God in vain as they use God's law to deny people his love. Yeah, I want to just name that President Oaks loves, and now he's, he went through many, he went through too many years of law school and experience as a judge, I think, and he loves to balance, you know, the legal profession is all about balance, right? Balancing rights, balancing principles, and all this balance. And he loves to say that the law of the Lord needs to balance, be balanced with God's love. Or, first of all, that shows an ignorance of the scripture where the law of the Lord is an expression of love. It's the Torah is a gift to God's people to, to be used to, to bless. Well, anyway, uh, but he also wants to balance justice with mercy. And I'm like, those aren't opposing because justice is about getting back into right relationship and mercy is about getting back into right relationship. Like, that is how the Hebrew prophets talked about mercy and talked about justice. And I should stop talking about the Bible because otherwise we're going to be here forever. (laughs) Just bouncing off Derek's uh, thoughts just now, I just want to, again, sorry, bring up one more scripture from Community of Christ, Doctrine and Covenants, more contemporary scriptures. Uh, This is from 163.7c, and it says, It is not pleasing to God when any passage of scripture is used to diminish or oppress races, genders, or classes of human beings. Much physical and emotional violence has been done to some of God's beloved children through the misuse of scripture. The church is called to confess and repent of such attitudes and practices. So that's a huge one in community of Christ. And again, we're not perfect. And we have definitely done our share, fair share of oppressing um, in our own church history, starting with the earliest days of the church. Uh, but when I was first seeking and um, thinking about joining Community of Christ, this was really uh, impactful to me because I feel like I have been on the margins from scripture, right? Like I've been pushed into these places where I have not been seen as a whole person. And yet I have a lot of privilege. Um, so there's a lot of people that have been oppressed by scripture far more than I have. But having scripture uh, that says don't use scripture as a weapon was really meaningful for me. I think there's a lot that our tradition can learn from Community of Christ, especially in regards to the healthy use of scripture and history. 
and especially about the inclusion of people on issues of difference. And I love the Community of Christ statement, Faithful Disagreement, which explicitly allows for people to have differences of opinion and follow their conscience and not be stigmatized for their differences of opinion. And I think we, uh, through our scrupulosity in, in the church th- here, think that, oh, everything needs to be just so, or it needs to follow this checklist, or you have to be within these particular lines. And that, to me, is really antithetical to the whole spirit of the gospel. Like, what is the I single to the glory of God supposed to be for? Right? It's not the I single to the checklist. Right? That's not what you should be looking at. I have a question for you, Brittany, because based on that passage you just read, I realize I have no idea, but has the uh, community of Christ engaged in a corporate confession for racism? Well, I I would say not as strongly as we should have. Community of Christ has been, we never had a priesthood band like the LDS Church. Uh-huh. Um, it's under the direction of Joseph III. Um, there's scripture that basically says, Yes, we can ordain the black community. Uh, however, it's it, it it has to be looked at in its context and time, right? Because yeah. it, it says something about um, do not do not be quick to do it. Um, this was right in the heart of the Civil War, um, the aftermath of the Civil War. I think there were a lot of cultural implications um, to work through, but theologically speaking, we've never been bound by that theology. So there hasn't been, I want to be careful with how I say this, there, there hasn't been as great of a need to do a corporate apology because there has not been an official policy, especially in scripture, um, that has barred the black community from ordination. But at the same time, there's plenty of racism that has happened in the church. And uh, we have one woman on our standing high council, Gwendolyn Hawks Blue, whose family, you know, was was marginalized in the church, was kept out of different camps. Uh, they would enter the swimming pool and all the white church folks would jump out. Um, you know, these are very real stories in our church history mm-hmm. um, that we we are not afraid to share. We are not afraid to say we were wrong. As far as like a corporate official apology, again, I, I think that corporations in general, community of Christ not excluded, could do better at, at calling that out. But I do think we give a really good effort in reparative justice, restorative justice. Um, you know, two of our apostles are from Zambia, and we have, again, uh, some of the governing bodies of the church are from the African American community in the United States. Um, so we, d- we do really good with representation and we aren't bound by the same theological or policies that the LDS church has, has found themselves wound up in, uh, which I appreciate, but are we the most woke church there is? Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, we, we do, uh, our headquarters is in the Midwest, right? Like we're headquartered in Independence, Missouri. Uh, anyone that's been in Missouri knows that racial tension is, is really high mm-hmm. and, uh, that's not great. Um, we we did ha- do a podcast with President Vizi um, following the murder of George Floyd, where he very explicitly calls out racism and calls it out in in the church. And he talks about how he has had misconceptions of the black community, and he publicly apologized and repented for that. 
So seeing that level of humility on the the part of the the president of the church has meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. But again, that doesn't mean we've arrived. That doesn't mean that there's not racism in the church. That doesn't mean that there's not a lot of room to grow. So at least yeah. you're making an effort. <laughs> you know, I read President Vizi's statement months ago, and so I don't remember the exact phrasing, but I was struck by it. It was it was sincere. It wasn't like. When I run down the, when I'm walking down the the road and I trip on something and then I turn it into a little jog to pretend that that's what I meant to do, right? Like, oops, I'm doing it right now, so let's just get. It wasn't that. It was sincere. It was genuine. It had the spirit of repentance and it had the spirit of doing the right thing, not just for what it looks like. And I think some of our leadership in the LDS Church can focus on what things look like mm-hmm. and image. And I'm like, nope. Image isn't isn't the isn't the Christ centered goal. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and move to uh, section twenty eight, the conversation on Hiram Page. Now, again, correct me, Derek, if I get any of this wrong, but what seems to be happening here is Hiram is getting revelations through a seer stone he found, and uh, it seems to be he seems to be able to influence a lot of people, including Oliver Cowdery. The the thing I wanted to bring out in this particular section was I really like that Joseph doesn't try to uh, lay down the law to correct things, but rather what he does is he receives a revelation and then he reads it at the conference and converses with the saints about it. Like that's what I like about this whole thing is that there is a conversation about the revelation after he gives it. And this seems to be how common consent ought to work. And it's not a coincidence that this is brought up again in a verse 13, the whole law of common consent. Like that is actually working the way it seems to be, it's supposed to mean. And based on the response to the revelation, it seems to have worked fine. This is what, uh, this is what was said. After considerable investigation, said Joseph Smith, quote, Brother Page, as well as the whole church who were present, renounced the said stone and all things connected therewith, much to our mutual satisfaction and happiness, close quote. As I read that, I had to think to myself, our history and even our present, our relationships with different groups might be different if we engaged in this more. I really like what you had to say, Derek, about uh, making sure that people on the margins, that they that their voices are lifted up. And I think if we engaged in this kind of behavior more often, we would have fewer problems as a church. Because just imagine that every time somebody gave a homophobic talk in general conference or gave any kind of quote-unquote revelation in general conference, and we actually invited a discussion on that, and then, you know, the members of the LGBTQ community who are closest to that issue got to say something, we might be in a different position today. Well, I have lots of thoughts. (laughs) Oh, yeah. All right, Derek, did you want to go? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, so this story and how everything shook out is foundational to Community of Christ. Uh, If you haven't noticed, I've quoted from uh, Doctrine and Covenant sections that have the 160 in front of them, right? We have 165 sections in our book of Scripture. And those scriptures are debated, discussed, voted on by the body of the church. So um, how it works in community of Christ, just a really quick overview is words of counsel from the president of the church, from the prophet are given to the church 
And we have a period of time to discuss that. Historically, it's looked differently. Um, with Section 156 and the ordination of women, it was basically dropped at the beginning of a week-long conference. And by the end of the conference, they voted on it. Um, however, in recent years, it's been given a year or two or whatever. And the church sits with those words. They study. There's materials made um, to help figure out what the vision actually would mean for the church, right? Like where, where God is calling us to go. Mm -hmm. So there's Q and A's, there's debates, there's um, different levels of conversation that happen. And then we go to a world conference and we debate the words on the floor of the conference chamber. And I can tell you as a little Mormon girl, like the little Mormon girl inside of me was like, Oh my gosh, when I was watching folks get up and say in front of church leadership, we don't think this is of God. We're going to vote this down because we don't, we don't like it. And they shared their testimony of why they weren't supportive of these words, right? And that's what happened with Section 156 and women in the priesthood. I mean, that was a lively debate. Mm -hmm. And people were openly calling the church into apostasy. And it's not like they like they could do that, right? They, they, could, they could have those debates and their voices were heard. Um, so for me, it was really jarring to see people actually go up and openly oppose church leadership. And yet it was met with love and it was met with, thank you. Your voice is, is welcome. Like Derek said, we do have a document of faithful disagreement. Um, but at the end of that conference, we voted and I was able to watch the canonization of section one 65 happen. Uh, so it, it's, it's interesting. And it, it does make me sad that the LDS church has lost that in a sense. Um, because again, you know, I, I, the, the democratic process of what revelation can be, uh, was probably the most meaningful part of my faith transition and going into community of Christ, because that's how we were able to come to a place where we ordain and are affirming of the LGBTQ community in countries that have voted on it and how we ordain women. And, and so for us, it, it, it really is meaningful because it does propel change. And from our perspective, that's revelation. Um, that's God speaking today. So cool. Yeah, those are the basically the handholds I was talking about earlier that you can reach out and grab on something to pull you even further on the journey. And I was, I was really thinking about this in terms of, I think there's a lot of people who, I, I hate to say this without sounding weird, but I think having an, an encyclopedic knowledge of the scriptures really helps you look at, at the piece, at the smaller piece, because there's a lot of people that they'll read something and really love it and find this nugget of truth here, but not realize that it could be balanced or amended or modified by something somewhere else in the scripture or a larger principle. And I think this happens so often in the LDS church where we proof text this little thing that's like, oh, whether it's by my own voice or voice of my servants, it's the same or all these other things. And we've got this uh, text in here where it says, and this is verse 20, uh, section 28, verse two. But behold, verily, verily, I say unto thee, no one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church, excepting my servant Joseph Smith Jr., for he receiveth them even as Moses. Now, you could put that on a little Hallmark card and boost your sense of, of, uh, of obedience and pride in the church and say, oh, look, I'm faithful. But 
if you don't realize what the rest of the narrative of our scriptures teaches, you will take this text out of context. And I've said that every text without a every text without a context is a pretext. Oh shoot. Say that again. I Whole bar. That's not my words. I can't remember where I heard that, but I've heard it somewhere <laughs> that every text without a context is a pretext. And this is something we do a lot. I think yeah. culturally, the way we do doctrinal mastery, the, the way do we, we do the manuals, like you take this little, well, anyway, I shouldn't talk about that. So I think it's important to zoom out. We're in the age of Zoom. We should do more zooming out and look and set every text within the totality of Scripture and within its local context to see what it means and to see how it applies. So the local context can help narrow down the interpretation of a verse, and the global context can help provide contrast or balance or even amendment. And so when interpreting a text, I like to look at the world behind the text, the world of the text, and the world in front of the text. And I'm not going to uh, quote these words for the sake of the time, but I'd just like to reference the LDS historical source called Revelations in Context. And when you look at the chapter on this section, you find these interesting details is that after the whole Hiram Page controversy, the crisis, Joseph actually intended to reason with Oliver and Hiram until the conference that was going to be convened later that September. And then at that point is when Joseph received this revelation. So, and it's at this point that Joseph receives the revelation that we now know as section 28. But then that's not the final story. You've got to look at the context. This section was here and it was used until the upcoming conference, right? That's the whole point is to tide them over until this conference where they could really talk about it. And it says here in this source, it quotes Joseph Smith's own retrospective history that says, quote, the subject of the stone above mentioned was discussed and after considerable investigation, Brother Page, as well as the whole church who were present, notice it says the whole church who were present, renounced the said stone and all things connected therewith, much to our mutual satisfaction and happiness. And I love how community of Christ has retained this spirit. And I think we have vestiges of that spirit, but we have been a little bit too much on the ledge and not on the handholds on this. But I think both are an authentic part of the Latter-day Saint tradition. Hmm. And notice notice Joseph's own attitude on here. I think he was a lot more humble than, uh, than later LDS narratives want to say. They want to make him out to be a saint. They want to make him out to be authoritative. They want to make him out to be like, oh, I know what I'm doing. He didn't know what he was doing uh, a lot of the time. And he had a lot of frailties and he had some numbers of mistakes that we're not going to get into because there's not enough time. But but he didn't actually have the view of the prophetic office that people now have of the prophetic office. And they are relying on his authority. It's a really, really... um, ironic contradiction, I think. But I suspect that when you look at the historical context here, that you can make a case that the apparent authoritarian powers granted to Joseph in that verse about, well, he's the only one who can who can whatever, 
This was actually a temporary stopgap measure until the issue could be resolved and addressed more conclusively by the assembled conference of the church later that September. And I think this could be a little bit analogous to the temporary emergency powers granted to a secular president for timely issues or crises that must be addressed. Like if there's a hurricane, if there's a snowstorm in Texas, if there's a pandemic, if there's whatever is going on, there may need to be something where you have to do something before the democratic process can be fully and thoroughly and responsibly conducted. But that's only temporary and it's only conditional. It is not an absolute totalitarian power. So, Brittany, I have a question for you. Like, as you do your ministry among former Latter-day Saints, do they get confused in Community of Christ where there's not an authority that tells them exactly what to do? Like, what are they, do they get confused? Yes. <laughs> um, it's actually a huge cultural misunderstanding, right? Because we're saying similar words, we're saying similar things, we have the same foundational scripture, but Community of Christ has taken this idea more of prophetic responsibility rather than prophetic authority. So it's in Community of Christ, it's it's very much uh, principles-based, not rules-based. We have a principle called responsible choices. Uh, so a lot of times I get the question, what does your church teach about fill in the blank? And I have to say, we don't, right? Like we we don't have this really defined law of chastity or this defined word of wisdom where, you know, we have this list of do's and don'ts. And if you do a don't, then you're on the the wrong side of, of the issue. Um, and, and President Beasy would, would say the same thing, right? And for us, we don't necessarily, well, there, there is a, a line that's often said, we're a prophetic people, not a people with a prophet. And uh, Grant McMurray was really one that uh, helped move the church in that direction. But you can see sprinklings of it throughout the reorganization, this idea that uh, common consent is at the heart of everything we do. And that turns the responsibility back over to the people, right? And, and so a lot of times I have found, myself included, when people are leaving a tradition that does kind of command them in all things, it's really hard to trust yourself. I didn't know where my moral compass was. What things was I holding on to because my church had told me that this was true or right or morally the way that I should go and what actually was, was God. And it kind of goes back to that, um, you know, what James brought up with the, what, what matters, what, what, what does God really care about? Um, but having, when Mormons come into community of Christ, that has been a big deal. This idea that they can trust themselves, they can make their own responsible choices under the umbrella of our principles, like the worth of all persons, um, blessings of community, those kinds of things that we, we want to live in relationship with one another and with God but that doesn't mean that everything is is spelled out for us under the direction of a prophet telling us what to do. It's a big difference. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm so thankful that you're able to shepherd uh, former Latter-day Saints into a new understanding of these things. And I hate to, I hate to say that I think some aspect of that is available to Latter-day Saints if we somehow stumble upon it, right? I think our leaders don't have any more power 
than we think they have. Uh, and especially for those of us on the margins, we, we don't have the luxury of letting of outsourcing our thought. Like I cannot, as a queer member of the church, even pretend for one second that our leaders are telling us the whole story. Like they don't even know the whole story. And so how can I take that guidance as any way uh, oppressive or binding or obligatory? I'm like, nope. Like if you are not going to live under these rules and you would never accept them for yourself, then why are you asking me to do them? And that gets back to um, sort of my emergency powers. It's not the same, but I do want to say that this reference to Moses here, we, if you go back and look at the text, it says, for he receiveth them even as Moses. And that's, this is where the whole context of Scripture comes back in because Moses messed up at the end of his life, right? He didn't even get to the promised land because he misunderstood the will of God. Like, hello, maybe Moses really is an analogy for Joseph, and I'm not going to get into the details on that. But, yeah, so this reference to Moses indicates that the old order was restored. Like Dale Luffman talks about this Christian primitivism that is really igniting not just the Latter-day Saint world, but the Campbellite world here in America in the early 1800s. But this old order was restored. Like, you've got prophets coming back. And we have to remember that Moses' authority or responsibility was temporary. It was not absolute. It was not infallible. And he led his people during a crisis and during a time of transition and had to have some bold statements, right? But that's not the end of the story. And I love that the narrative of the DNC uh, as a whole, but especially during the New York and Kirtland eras, teaches checks and balances. It teaches limitations of prophetic authority, the necessity of prophetic humility and restraint, accountability to the church, and especially for me, the publication of revelations for the sake of that accountability. And a number of revelations were published in 1832-33 uh, in the periodical The Evening and the Morning Star. We've got the Book of Commandments in 1833, the Doctrine of Covenants in 1835. You had a lot of these things being published so that missionaries and elders teaching could have them. And, could, and, the, and you could also have something that's been approved by conference. And later on in this same section, you have to look at the global context, but also the local context. The same section that says Joseph is the only one that can do certain things also says that these emergency powers are deployed temporarily until the ad issue could be adjudicated by the common scent of God's people in conference. We read... Later, in this same section, it's in verse 13, it says, For all things must be done in order and by common consent in the church, by the prayer of faith. And so I feel that absolute and arbitrary power vested in one person would be contrary to both good order and the common consent of the church. I love that it says all things must be done in order. Having a tyrant, oh, that's not order, right? We in the United States learnt that uh, the hard way. Um but I think that, especially without the publication and canonization of a text, through a genuine process, a genuine vote of common consent, we don't have order. We just have the uh, appearance of order, which kind of like 
the uh, appearance of justice or the appearance of peace that is only done based on the absence of dissent or the absence of looking at the problem, that's not real peace. And it's the same thing here. I think that much of the overclaiming and overconfidence of our members on LGBT issues derives from some things that haven't been canonized. It derives from the interior impressions of leaders which have never even been published. Uh, and from texts which have never been approved by the vote of the church. Like, I hear this this statement like, oh, the leaders were inspired. Like, you're not following the teachings of the, you know, they're not following this. Like, where are those teachings? Like, give me the, the, da the date and the time where you received a revelation from God that says my people should never have an equal place in this church. Show me those words. Be accountable. If you're proud of those words, give them to me, right? I don't want to say, oh, I, ha I have this gut feeling this subjective thing that may have been part of the air that we're all swimming in in the mid-20th century, and I just don't feel it's the Lord's will for you to have the same thing I do. Nope, that doesn't work for me. And I have the boldness, probably as a convert to this church, that, that others might not have the luxury of having. But that's why I have a lot of holy envy, as Christer Stendhal says, for certain aspects of Community of Christ. Uh, I just want to to read one of the uh, provisions in the document Faithful Disagreement. It says, a person with a differing viewpoint on a particular position is to be respected by the body. She or he may share a viewpoint as a personal opinion during discussions, meetings, training, and other conversations where it is suitable to share personal opinions. And I love how this document does not limit people's access to callings or standing in the community based solely on their principles and convictions. So that basically, the whole point of this is I'm saying you, we've got to look at the whole context and the local context, and if you just take a, a quote out of context, it will be a pretext. Well, and I think that that's so important, and like you said, Derek, it is part of the foundation of our collective community. Um, this is something that we we have agreed on as a people um, to uphold the voice of others. And I think that Joseph, you know, I, I having left the LDS church, I think sometimes people think that I'm a critic of Joseph, but I try to be a realist about him, right? Like, I don't know what it's like to to start a church, to bring a community of dissenters together, to bring a community of seekers together. I think that that balance of, of who is in charge, you know, how many cooks can you have in the kitchen? I, I that those are difficult questions that Joseph was wrestling with. And I think that um, this idea that we are, that we are a, a community that was birthed in this American democracy fever and this, you know, democratization of religion, it can't be, you can't overlook it because that's, that's the foundation. So, I mean, I agree. I, I have always as a Mormon been frustrated with knowing when is a prophet quote unquote speaking as a man, or when is it, you know, when is there a little more weight? Cause it seemed like in my experience, a lot of people were just kind of picking and choosing, um, you know, maybe taking some really problematic quotes on race or gender or orientation and conveniently saying like, oh, well, that's just his opinion. But it's like, but really, was it? Because that was Brigham Young at General Conference. So how do we how do we reconcile that when 
when those words have been used and still are used to oppress people. Mm. And so I found a, a gap in my Mormon experience where, um, like the proclamation, you know, where some people say that that's doctrine and other people don't, and it's not easily defined. And it's, again, like you said, Derek, usually the people who are having the conversation are the people who are at the center of the church, who hold the power in church. And I don't think that that's where our best theology and doctrine comes from. Um, I think that the example of Jesus, he was always looking outside of the central religious authority, and he was always looking in the margins, and he was always saying, wait a second, <laughs> what does this story mean for this person? And to me, being a disciple of Jesus, being a minister in a church, um, I am always trying to balance that struggle of my own privilege, my own white privilege, my own straight privilege, my own middle class privilege, because the gospel is heard by people in the margins much, much, much differently. And I think that those of us who are at the center of any conversation need to recognize that and need to step aside uh, and, and know when, <laughs> when our views just really aren't helpful. Um, and and it, it takes humility. And so I think that when I look at Joseph and, and all the struggles that he was having as he was forming his own community, uh, I, I see that tension right in his own words and in his own revelation and his own actions of, of how he laid out the structure of his church. Yeah, it is so difficult to, and I haven't come up with a good line of demarcation between what's binding and what's not binding, what's official and what's not official, what's doctrine, what's policy, what's folklore, what's culture, like, that's a big mess, right? But for me, the simplest way of defining it is to say there's nothing binding but the truth. If something is true, then it's our doctrine. If it's not true, it's not our doctrine. And I'm not obligated to believe anything that's not actually true. And that helps me solve so many historical and theological difficulties that we have in our church. And that's why I love the, the historical work, for example, of uh, Richard Howard in Community of Christ, who's and, and many others who have done the hard work of, hey, we've got to look at how our story's been told and we might need to tell a, bit, a little bit differently. And Joseph might not have been what we thought he was, and the Book of Mormon might not have been not might not be what we thought it was. And I think there's something genuine and real about being honest with yourself that queer people have to face when we come out of the closet. It's not it might not be pretty, but we need to just admit the truth and then live into the authenticity, which which is it's harder. It's harder to be out, right? But I think that Community of Christ has taken the harder path, and there's going to be bumps. But I have a lot of admiration, admiration and affirmation of what I've seen from Community of Christ. Just in general, in this conversation, and especially since Derek brought up the faithful disagreement, something I didn't necessarily bring to light as much as I originally had planned, uh, just mostly because I felt like it was kind of getting getting in the weeds, but just kind of how Community of Christ views history in general. We have church history principles and a statement on scripture um, that is much lengthier than what I'll say, but basically history is not our theology. And it gets tricky when history becomes scripture through the Doctrine and Covenants. So I feel like a lot of these 
sections are just seen a little bit differently in community of Christ, or they're a little bit less literal, or we at least ask questions about them. Kind of like my question with, you know, who did show up to Joseph? Was that an angel? Was it Jesus? Who was, whose voice was it? Um, but ultimately kind of like not getting hung up on the symbolism of sacramental ministry. Uh, we, we like to not get hung up on those historical, um, just those points of, of, of where history can be debated or where um, Joseph exp Joseph's experience has evolved and has changed and the story may have changed depending on who he was talking to, et cetera. So just for us, just because something is in the Doctrine and Covenants does not make it gospel truth for us in this day and age. We do like to zoom back and, and look at the, con the full context. Are we always perfect at it? No. Has it been a process for sure? Because uh, I know that you know, if, if we were having this conversation back in, say, 1920, it would be very different, right? Because we would all be working under the assumption that our leaders were speaking directly for God and to God, and the other one was an apostate. And so I just want to make it clear that, like, that's not where I think any of us are coming from today, um, but that that church history is messy and scripture is messy and theology is messy. Uh, but again, having that voice from the margins be the the primary driver of the conversation, I think is just really, really important. Before we wrap up, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brittany, do you have any uh, socials where people can find you? Um, I'm always good. If people want to add me on Facebook, just Brittany Mangelson. Uh, the ministry that I'm involved with is called Latter-day Seekers. So we have a Facebook group and a, a public Facebook page as well. Like I said, I'm a host on Project Zion podcast. Uh, you can find that on wherever wherever you find your podcast, or we do have a website. Uh, but yeah, that's where you can you find me. You have a website. We do, projectzionpodcast.org. Right. Uh, or I could share my uh email it's just bmangelson at seaofchrist.org but you can also just look me up on facebook dope thank you for sharing that derek where can people find us you can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com also on twitter and facebook and instagram at btblds thank you if there's uh, nothing else, just got to send out some quick thank yous. Thank you to Tamara Kemsley for editing our audio. Also to uh, David Doyle for editing our transcripts. And uh, thank you to all our collaborators who have uh, included or at least contributed some uh, feedback, some ideas to the show. And uh, also, you know, however you guys have been contributing, whether it be financially or whether it be by sharing the show, we really appreciate all you guys who have uh, contributed to the show. If you are looking to do so and to uh, join our collaborator Facebook community, you can go to glow, that's G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block if you want to throw some coins at the show we would greatly appreciate it so that we can sustain this work that we are doing if there's nothing else want to thank Brittany again for joining us today 
Seriously, it was such a privilege and uh, a pleasure to have you on. And we will see all of you next week.